There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Alloyed. Episode 8 and the season finale of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, the television show, if you want to call it that, that just aired on Amazon. (laughs) Our spoiler warning, we will be discussing everything that's aired thus far in The Rings of Power, as well as all tangential Lord of the Rings and Legendarium materials. We are actually going to do something a little bit different today because me and Emily are kind of over the show. (laughs) In our token, token uh, spoiler section, we are instead going to discuss the first six episodes of Andor, (laughs) which gets me to our big announcement. As this is our last Rings of Power episode, we do want to remind everyone what else is going to be happening. First off, we are going to not stop talking about Star Wars as we're going to start covering the last half of Andor, a Star Wars series on Disney+. Plus. We both really love the show, and with the season half over, we are just frothing at the mouth to talk about it with the love and care we do The Lord of the Rings. We will be covering the last six episodes, dropping episodes latest by Monday following a new episode, um, and we are going to push back our Two Towers coverage for now into December, but we'll return to that immediately after Andor. Also, our first Patreon episode comes out this Friday, October 21st. In this episode, you will get a chance to better know me and Emily for better and for worse. <laughs> we answer questions from our patrons and our friends and ask a few questions ourselves. We'll be doing a Patreon-exclusive episode once a month. Next month, we'll be on Tolkien and History, and we may have a guest lined up for that. And December was supposed to be Andor, and it may still well be, perhaps <laughs> a series or a season recap, but we'll reassess after we cover these last six episodes. Patreon exclusives are available to our $10 patrons, and you can sign up at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod. At all levels, you'll get access to our Discord community, an inclusive space for sickos and weirdos who want to talk about Lord of the Rings, House of the Dragon slash A Song of Ice and Fire, Star Wars, and more. And higher levels will get you bonus content and early access to all our episodes. All right, Emily, um, do we know who Sauron is? We know who Sauron is. God, yeah. I hate this fucking show. It's so uh, bad. <laughs> I, I think we, we should just call out the structure here. So this episode does a cold open, which I can't remember if it did a cold open. I th- It might have with episode one. Um, but it basically does a cold open here with the stranger who we last saw was sent off on his own by the Harfoots. And he is accosted by Eminem and D12, and they (laughs) bow down to him saying that he is Sauron, and then we go into opening credits. But as we'll find out later in the episode, this was a mistake. This stranger is actually a wizard or an Istari. Um, He ends up, you know, doing the graveyard smash on the, you know... Rappers from Detroit and destroys them all, um, and we we get the real the real reveal. God, that's so dumb. That uh, Halbrand is actually our Sauron as he helps Calabrimbor start the forging of the Great Rings. Um, that's pretty much what happens in this episode. So Emily, just take a shot. Where do you want to start? Um, let's start with 
Nah, fuck it. I was gonna try and say something nice about the show. I can't be fucked. Uh, what waste of twelve hours of my life. Um, I liked the bit where uh, we are now at upper thigh count number five, uh, and I will apologize to our dear listeners because I did miss one in the last episode with Eminem again. Uh, my sincerest apologies for that. I cannot express enough, uh, genuinely, how mad I am at myself for having missed that because this is the weirdest, funniest uh, little theme in any TV. Show going right now, but we get another one with Eminem as well. Weird upper thigh count. Now, zero irony. If you, dear listeners, know why the fuck this keeps happening, please write in. Please, God, write in. I'm desperate to know why this one weird specific thing keeps happening with the wardrobe. Why it's always in shot like that. Like, please, God, someone be the like Ed Snowden to my oh Glenn Greenwald. Uh, uh, someone else. <laughs> yeah, let's rethink that. Yeah, someone else be the whoever to the whoever. Uh, I know history. Uh, yeah, I'm obsessed with this, and it's the weirdest thing, and it's the only detail I can focus on because the rest of the show is just so devoid of any fucking value yeah um it honestly feels like work um (laughs) you know it's always a little bit of a struggle to cover something live as it airs i've done it you know for several years with game of thrones and i'm doing it now with house of the dragon but like i actually enjoy doing that like i enjoy being able to watch it for pleasure and then sitting down the next morning and like re-watching it in detail going full notes just strong braining every possible take i could have analysis of history of lore of direction and performance and that it's rewarding it's it's something that's so rich that the deeper you dive dig into it like the more i feel satisfied with it i'm like wow a lot of people are putting a lot of good work and thought into this and it's rewarding for us the people who have to sit there and pick it apart and create quote-unquote content about it and i get none of that joy from this show um it's mostly me asking you questions and then you being all fucked off because it's not even a question anyone should be asking about this kind of stuff (laughs) um and it's like i mean i've honestly really enjoyed covering it with you but besides that it it just hasn't been that much fun no and i think that's the kind of thing for me right where like basically since episode one of this thing where at least for me i was like this show is irredeemably ruined like it's not gonna be good and i've been kind of weighing up this question in my head of like is this better or worse than the hobbit um the hobbit movies or the book you know (laughs) fuck the original book too but like you know is it better or worse than the original hobbit movies which i feel like in in some ways in the history of cinema are kind of like a a a bit of a minor turning point in terms of everything definitely started to get worse after these films came out and i think now i'm kind of at the point where i'm like i do actually think the hobbit movies rank above the whatever this monstrosity is and and it's for the sheer fact that like there are many problems with the hobbit movies but it is like undeniably peter jackson's work like you know um i will probably make people mad when i say this but you know after having seen the hobbit movies there are some things i even go back in and lord of the rings and look at and say oh i can really see where this is the genesis point for things that went wrong in the hobbit and it's not to say that the lord of the rings movies are any lesser for it but like it is very clear that this is you know point a to point b in a single director's career I I can't talk about the show like that. Like nobody can talk about the show like that because it's so devoid of personality, both within the characters, but also creatively. Like there's just nothing to say and trying to be nice about the show and trying to like find depth or seriousness or even entertainment in this thing is like pulling blood from a stone. Um, which is kind of in itself funny because I feel like that, like watching that happen, watching someone try to do that would certainly be more compelling than 12 hours of 
whatever this is. And like, you know what? The other thing that makes me mad about this, sorry, I've been sitting on this all day because uh, I've had to watch the episode and stops and starts, which is not ideal, but here we are. There's a whole world online and, and I've been and I've been dunking on, especially in a lot of the last recent episodes that we've recorded, I've been dunking on like fan fiction writers who file off the serial numbers on their fanfic and then sell it to to publishing houses and go get their massive paperbacks and, and make, you know, millions of dollars off of it. And I've been dunking on them for that. But that's not to say that this, that's the sum total of online fan creations, fan, uh, transformative works. And I think the thing that I find especially souring about this whole experience is that I know online right now, there are probably between one and 5,000 writers who write for Lord of the Rings or associated elements like the Silmarillion or the Hobbit, who are vastly more talented, vastly more competent, vastly more thoughtful, and vastly funnier and more entertaining than these showrunners who who got like the red carpet rolled out for them by J.J. Abrams. And, it, and the show, very specifically for me, underlines how like deeply and profoundly undemocratic the entertainment industry as a whole. And now obviously capitalism itself is inherently undemocratic. So I'm not saying anything radical there, but there's something so anti-meritocratic about the way that the entertainment industry works. And we're all punished for it, right? Like these useless fucking McLean high school grads get in somehow with JJ Abrams. Don't do anything until they're like, what, 35, 40, like zero CV to speak of and immediately get handed a billion dollar Amazon TV show to, to fuck with and essentially like desecrate one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the Western canon. And there's nothing to qualify them for that. And why is it these motherfuckers who get it? And the answer is because they are incredibly rich background, like incredibly wealthy white men. And that's it. And like, that's all there is. And if you go online right now, you'll find, uh, you know, 5,000 people of varying backgrounds and, and personal histories who can write better and deserve more of a chance to, to have at this material and to transform this material than these motherfuckers. And it sucks that it's these motherfuckers that got the opportunity to do it. And like, obviously, it's endemic to all of, you know, the arts industry writ large and, and has been for, you know, probably the better part of a century, if not two. I'm not really saying anything radical there, but this show just like drills it in and it makes me so mad. Yeah, I even think with like the Peter Jackson Hobbit films, like even though I don't think they're good, I can still see that, ah, yes, Peter Jackson has some reverence for this material yeah. and some like baseline understanding. And, you know, I don't want to defend the Hobbit films, but it was, there's a whole bunch of reasons that it's kind of a shit show. It's not just the fact that they made it three movies, but also like the working conditions and the non-unionized labor, the writer strike, um, the many directors that it went to before they finally brought Jackson back in for it. But like at no point am I like the person making this has no regard for the source material, yeah. you know? Um, and this is like, now I'm really curious what the one thing they read is and like, oh, this is <gasps> our inspiration for the earlier. show. Oh my I God, yeah. Genuinely do not know what the inspiration for the show is. And like you said, this is their very first writing credit, which I get sometimes no names get the handoffs for big projects. Hell, that's not too dissimilar from Peter Jackson, but they have zero credits. Yeah. And to that end, there are some like, fundamental baffling storytelling decisions like forgetting the lord of the rings of it all yeah just like the way the show is structured the way that so few characters have any interiority yep. and even down to this episode they do a cold open with a fake sauron reveal even though half of us still kind of figured it was still hallbrand and then they just dumped that like 20 seconds later so if they were going to do something with the stranger as a fake sauron they could have had it go longer yeah uh, and then 
what we are going to get is the stranger, as they say, is an Astari. Um, I, I presume it's Gandalf. I guess they can do Radagast or the Blue Wizards. But I'm like, Ian McKellen took that role and made it one of like the touchstone performances of a generation of cinema. Yeah. And now, and no disregard to Daniel Wayham or whatever the actor's name is, but you're you're not setting him up to succeed if he's just going to be Gandalf now. Yeah. He's going to be Gandalf in a shittier thing. Yeah. And we already see saw Gandalf in The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is going to be even below that and don't forget ian mckellen almost quit acting because of that movie yeah um so um i don't know it's just it's just not interesting like i know what things are going to happen i'd rather you show some interiority to the characters being affected by it instead of because as much as they say it's not about mysteries or whatever this whole season was geared towards just what was answered in the cold open and then later reversed with the Halbrand reveal. Yeah. None of it mattered besides those two scenes, really. Yeah. Well, well but you know what? It, it, it's, it is the cowardice of it. It is like, it, like, I feel like I sometimes get shut online for like being, I don't know, too reverential or whatever for Tolkien, which is like, I, whatever. I, I, I think that's ridiculous because I think I'm quite critical of uh, mad lad Tolkien. Um, but like, there, there is obviously a kind of thoughtless reverence that these showrunners have for the material, which is that like they they like the Lord of the Rings, which is their right. Um, they may have even read the books. I'm not sure of that, but they might have done, which, again, is their right to do or not do. But they I think they don't have an examined understanding of why they like the Lord of the Rings. They know that there's something about the Lord of the Rings that they like and they can't quite figure it out. So when they're trying to transmit what it is that they like to us through the media of the show, the medium of the show, they're missing it every single time because they can't decide, is it the Peter Jackson films that we like? And if it is, are we just going to copy that? Or um, is it the the kind of the stories and the themes that, you know, the alleged themes that that Tolkien includes in the Lord of the Rings? And, and if so, is that what we're going to make a part of this or is it you know is it just the the kind of enormity the the culture uh, and social enormity of the lord of the rings and i'm sort of now coming to the 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 feeling the belief that like they are kind of just amazed by the lord of the rings like they think the lord of the rings is awesome in the literal sense which is also kind of how i feel about how jj abrams thinks about star wars which was most evident to me in uh the rise of skywalker which is obviously a movie that has been litigated and relitigated ad nauseum which i just find boring but like you know the, this is really effectively the lord of the rings rise of skywalker in a sense which is that these guys are trying to speak the language of the lord of the rings and they know there is a grammar to it and they haven't quite mastered the grammar and they're sort of just only gesturing at the language and it's the same thing that that jj abrams does in in the rise of skywalker where he's like okay so so star wars if you break star wars down to con its constituent elements it's jedi and stormtroopers and lightsaber battles and bad relationships with your father and also a death star and then he takes all of those understanding those kind of grammatical components and doesn't really put together an entirely coherent sentence. Like there is a subject, there is a verb, there is possibly like an independent clause or a subjunctive clause or whatever. All of those elements are there, but they, they when squished together, they don't make a sentence that is comprehensible. And this TV show has uh, hobbits and it has elves and it has Mordor, but you put them together and it doesn't mean anything. And and we are now in episode whatever, eight, at the season finale of episode one, where realistically, I think we should have been 
in within two minutes of episode one. And like, look at all of these hours that we've wasted. Look at the careers that these guys have probably destroyed. Like, I strongly suspect there are quite a few of these actors who will probably not get hired again um, and who deserve to get hired again, who who deserve to get uh, like long and successful careers, who will probably have their careers tainted by association with this just laughably dog shit show. And also, they've probably done the really cool and great thing, which is going to be just like ruining the ability of anybody to adapt this shit ever again, which, you know, I'm starting to think maybe now will be a good thing if we just put this thing to bed and let it be book and peter jackson films only yeah um i can't say i disagree with any of that maybe we will not get that aon rohirrim anime show and probably based on how this went that's probably for the best oh did you hear they cast brian cox as a helm hammerhand okay never mind i just found that out the other day and i was like holy (laughs) shit i'm suddenly really interested in this thing (laughs) yes um yeah, I, I, it's like I don't even know where to begin. Like you say, um, first of all, our pitch for the show where they should have sank Numenor in like the first episode as like the big yep. like opening salve, yep. that would have been amazing. Yep. That <laughs> that actually would have been good. Like everything here, like honestly, I would have like the creation of Mordor be episode one. Yep. I'll just do like a bottle episode. We don't, there's no characterization to Arondir or Bronwyn that requires us to know anything about them no. before that battle. So you could have literally just, hey, our first episode just going to be this big random battle. And at the end, boom, Mount Doom. Okay, shit. Um, I, you know, have issues with some of that episode, but it was my favorite of the season. And at least it like, gets to the fucking point. Well, just do, um, like, the prologue to to the Peter Jackson films, right? That's a big fuck-off battle that we have almost no context for that is enormously effective. Why did we need mm-hmm. seven episodes, six episodes of build-up for such a fucking nothing burger? It's, like... It's just why... Why do Secret Sauron... Like, I was kind of joking. It's like, oh, I bet you the first season's gonna be, like, a Secret Sauron <laughs> thing. And then it... And that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, I honestly... If I if I was given this property and like forced to make a show instead of like benevolently saying no one should adapt any of this, I would just say, let me make up some characters and let them travel around Middle Earth and maybe they'll run into like a dragon or a Balrog. Yeah. And I would just, you know, maybe someone like goes to the city of Linden and then talks to Celebrimbor, but I would not make Celebrimbor a part of the, like the re- regular cast. No. Um, I would just say, hey, these are brand new characters, and what we want to do is basically make like a Final Fantasy slash RPG style story where you gather some characters and you go on a quest. Yeah, um, that's kind of what the Lord of the Rings is. Just do something else. There's so much that's untapped, especially when you think about people who are part of just like the general audience who only knows Peter Jackson's films. Uh, there's so much more to Middle Earth. You have like all of Harad. You can do stuff with Rune. The Brownlands, there's just like a lot of places and then you can pepper in some of the locations and maybe like one or two like elves that we knew from uh, the Lord of the Rings. But I would just not try to touch the canonicity of Middle Earth or the Second Age and just like because what they clearly wanted to do was just create a show set in Middle Earth. So why do that? Why not just do that and free yourself from all these bounds? Because like you said, they were trying to thread a needle to appeal to both book readers and you know movie only folks and i don't see either of those sides being satisfied by what we got here no there's no way 
you know what? I keep going back and forth with myself on like, you know, I think the the Halbrand, Halbrand Sauron, who could have been shocked by that? Uh, like that, that, that reveal, I'm also almost kind of angry about it now because I think like what it shows is a total misunderstanding of Sauron as a character and the sort of ways that Sauron chooses to present himself and his utter lack of humility. Um, and, and I'm like, God, the, you know, there's so much to be said about that and the total misunderstanding of villainhood and, and who masquerades as what and what guises people use, especially given that Anatar Sauron is Lord of the Gifts and he's a Lord there, not just a random fucking guy out of nowhere. And then I'm like, why am I wasting my breath on this? <laughs> like, like, why do I care? These guys haven't thought about it. I'm a fucking jackass for thinking this hard about it. And um, the one thing I do want to do, though, is I do want to read a line from this episode, the series of lines from this episode that I think broke me as a human being. And I don't think I will ever be able to take anything related to The Lord of the Rings uh, as seriously as I did before <laughs> having now read this. Um, so the context for the scene is, uh, who cares? Uh, nobody cares. There's no context for the scene. It's a whole bunch of elves fucking around in somewhere, making weird faces at one another. And Calibrimber says, I'm just gonna, I'm, I just gotta quote, quote directly. Calibrimber says, one object for all Middle Earth. And then Gil Galad, absolute nothing of a character, says, precisely what manner of object? To which Calibrimber replies, something that could be carried. A circular form will be ideal. <laughs> I hate the show. I hate the show so much. I can't believe they Dora the Explorer fucking <laughs> the one ring. And then they were like, and then even worse is later they were like, uh, oh, you know, we have to make three rings because one is too much power and two corrupts, but three is a good number. As if the Silmarils were not numbered three. And I'm like, I, I want to go back and I want to ask whoever it was that was doing the shit in the press where it was like we started every single writing session with like ruminating on a Tolkien quote. If they were actually fucking reading or if they were just staring at the name Tolkien on a whiteboard going, mm, looks good. And what happened in their brain? What misfired to get to one object for all Middle Earth? Man. <laughs> Yeah. It, first of all, that it just sounds dumb. One object for all Middle Earth. <laughs> um, I know they're trying to do the cadence of one ring to rule them all, but it just one it's object. Just bad word choice. <laughs> There's like nothing else to it. Mm -hmm. And also, it's like, what are you hiding from us? Your fucking show is called The Rings <laughs> of Power. You don't. We don't need to dedicate. First of all, these episodes are already seventy some minutes, oh, which is God. way too long. They should just be an hour and just stick to the format. Yeah. But then we know what they are getting at the whole point of this you could have saved literally like three minutes of screen time by just saying we should do rings because there's even another point later where they're like it should be something small and that you can carry and um that's somehow a different conversation from the one you were just quoting yeah but it's just like all of this is basically just to say we're gonna make some rings yeah and i think the rings look um, like shit <laughs> they look like lollipop rings ring pops <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I could actually go for one of those. Oh, my God, yeah. And They, they don't do them here. I hate it. I hate the UK almost as much as I hate the Amazon show. Oh, come God. on. It's just, I, I do not understand, like, what, what the point is. Because there's no, like, dramatic tension or irony here. It just... So, um... I'm I'm gonna I probably referred to it already in our coverage, but I think I need to explain this for the audience, especially one that's not on Twitter. Um, this is the Surf Dracula tweet, <laughs> um, and the tweet is basically I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but basically if there was a show that came out in the '90s that was called Surf Dracula, 
you would have a vampire on a surfboard every episode. That's be all it was. Now in the year 2022, or he's probably starting in the year like 2014, if there's a show called Surf Dracula, you will spend like nine to 10 episodes learning about Dracula. And in the final 10 minutes of the show or the season, you will then see him finally on a surfboard. And that's supposed to be a payoff, even though that's the, like, that's literally the thesis. That's the title of your fucking show. Yeah. Um, and there's like no reason, like if they had like literally created Mordor and forged the rings of power in like episode one and two, I would possibly maybe even probably be interested in where they were going next. Yeah. But they're taking things that I absolutely know happened that I'm not, to be honest, I don't care yeah. <laughs> about this stuff. Like, I don't care how a volcano blew up and created Mordor. It's more interesting to me to watch the men of Gondor or the men of Rohan or the elves or the dwarves deal with this evil that's, like, encroaching on their doorstep and, like, the different power plays that it throws off. Yeah. It's, like, again, I'm looking for interiority, and I hate to keep quoting George Martin, but, like, the human heart in conflict with itself. Yeah. And I there's zero zero character motivation and like Galadriel is the one they spent the most time on but the first four episodes is just her beating up groups of dudes in different ways yep. and like I am the guy I am the action guy I could get behind that if there was something else to it yep. but it just feels like your whole point is like we need to show Galadriel as a badass fighter and for what yeah for what yep. I like what was even the point of all that build-up yeah yeah, uh, you know what? It, it, uh, well, whatever. We're going into Andor anyway, so I'll just do this. Um, after episode six of Andor, which came out on Wednesday, uh, which blew my mind, um, you know, I had this moment of being like, okay, so this is the end of the first half of season one of Andor. And the only thing, really, the only thing that has actually happened in this show so far is that they robbed a bank. And yet, every episode of this series, all six of them. I've been white knuckling the chair that I've been sitting in. It has felt incredibly intense. It felt it has felt like so much has happened. It feels like I've learned so much about the world that the show inhabits and so much about the characters. My perception of, of Cash and Andor as a character, and I realize I'm in a small minority of people who have cared about him as a character since, you know, since Rogue One came out and have cared a lot. You know, my, my very perception of Cash and Andor as a character has totally changed and changed in like a really, in a way that's very exciting to me. And then you go back and think through eight episodes of the rings of power and on paper so much has happened so much has happened on paper yet in reality it feels like the most boring goddamn show of all time it hasn't made me think more deeply about the story i don't feel any different about the characters than i did at the start i'm not reconsidering my thoughts on Celebrimber or elrond or galadriel i'm literally back at square one with where i where i was always at and 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 i don't feel like i've learned or or been made to think in any way that makes me feel like this was, you know, my time well spent. And and to add to your earlier point about it feeling like work, you know, I have been pulling a lot of heavy shifts at work lately. And sitting down to watch the show feels like punishment. And, you know, I love a good kind of mindless bit of entertainment. And I, this ain't it, Chief. Like, it really isn't. Like, there's just nothing entertaining about this because it's just being patronized to for you know by people who really don't have any fucking like merit or value or anything to like you know commend themselves to the world at large which to be honest i get enough of at work and don't really want to get when i sit down at the end of my day yeah no that's fair i i would not want this to be like my salve after a bad, a bad yeah. work day like it would actually like be like salt in the wounds more or less yep. uh 
and and they just keep doing the same like unforced errors like there's the scene where the king is dying or you know and it's what's actually funny is that his dying scene is basically the same exact death rattle they had for um a character in house of the dragon and (laughs) that's like an incredibly powerful scene and people are like give that actor an emmy because he was just amazing this season yeah and it's basically staged the same way and i'm like okay woman arian is here (laughs) and um the king is like you know go look at the thing and then we know she's walking towards a palantir she walks up to it it's covered in a cloth and she's about to pull it off and as soon as she pulls it off they cut away as if we don't know what's fucking there and i'm like what is the point of this like you might as well just had the king say Go use the Palantir. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, I don't understand what any of these dramatic choices are. You know, the score is building. I'm like, why am I supposed to care about this? This character who's got all of, like, 95 seconds of screen time over eight episodes. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just struggling with... I, I can't say what the theme of this show is. Like, and I'm very good at doing eighth grade book reports about television shows. That's basically my entire writing style. And I am just struggling to come up with where would I even start if I had to write a thesis about this that was actually trying to tackle the material in good faith and not thinking too much about the production outside of it. I have no idea where I'd start. Yeah. Well, like, um, you know what this, this show is representative of it is uh, like, Sorry to bring it back. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for this. Like America is in the middle of an enormous intellectual and identity crisis right now. And and like the American bourgeoisie, sorry to go kind of crude Marxist, the American bourgeoisie has failed to to establish a sort of coherent uh, narrative for itself, a, 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 you know, a coherent raison d'etre. Um, the, the kind of sheen of the American Revolution is rapidly sort of buffing away and, and the kind of torrid undercurrent of, of life in America and what America as a state is, it, is really coming to light, especially in, in the past, I would say, 40 to 50 basically since the war. Uh, and, and and I think there, there's this kind of failure to, if you are an unconsidered American, and I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, 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 two McLean High School graduates uh, a mile and a half down the road from the CIA um, are, are going to be what I'm going to call generously unconsidered Americans, which is that they blindly accept America as a thing and accept quote unquote American values without really understanding what that means. And so they're trying to transmit whether, whether you know, uh, explicitly and, you know, con Consciously or unconsciously, they're trying to transmit these American values onto something that is uh, Tolkien's work, which is number one, profoundly ideologically conservative, number two, profoundly ideologically Catholic, and number three, profoundly British. And these are three things that do not function very well in light of the American ethos. And these guys are just trying to push this American, this this identity crisis Americanism into something that is very clear about what it is. And because they themselves have obviously not got the sort of level of self-awareness and self-consciousness to understand what it is they're trying to argue, you just get this fucking sludge. Like, it's just this, like, narrative and political sludge. There's no reason for this thing to exist. And in more or less the same way as at this point, there's not really a reason for America to exist. And 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 it's falling apart. And so, you know, we can debate whether or not Tolkien was actually intending to write a British mythology, but whatever he did, he did manage to capture the British zeitgeist incredibly effectively and, and, and perhaps kind of unflinchingly, even if he maybe wasn't attempting to do so unflinchingly. And these guys haven't captured shit except for the fact that America as a, as a nation and as a culture sort of symbol can't tell its ass from its elbow right now and and it's just this deep weakness of of the industry and i'm like i think these guys 
should probably like to be honest like i feel like these guys if i were like part of the american bourgeoisie i would be like jeffrey epsteining these guys like killing them in a prison cell because you can't uncover how kind of intellectually bankrupt america is as an entity and and not really face some sort of like like outcome for that like these guys gotta fucking go because they're 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 blowing the whole up uh, emily's review of the rings of power death to america uh <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm struggling to think if there's anything I even want to mention, uh, like Gandalf fighting like the Eminem and his posse. Like there's a point where they go like black and white and a giant moth, like uh, what's it called? Like shows up on screen. I literally thought I was having a stroke. I'm like, they can't actually be doing this. This isn't that obvious. Right. And then he like disintegrates them. Like he literally like disintegrates people. And then everyone's like all happy and crying about it. Um, I guess, uh, what's he's like off to go to rune after this. And like Nori's going with him. Uh, they have like this long quote unquote emotional send off with other Harfoots and, and like Poppy's all like crying about it. I'm like, why isn't Poppy just going too? Oh, in the uh, like pathetic you, attempt to do the Sam and Frodo bit at the end of fellowship of the ring. Mm-hmm, Dunk mm-hmm. those motherfuckers in some water. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> All right. Uh, because I do want to get to Andor chat, um, I will say let's end on this. Let's literally talk about dunking in water because one of the silliest things this episode was this Halbrand Galadriel showdown um, where he basically does the thing that uh, Loki does to Valkyrie and Thor Ragnarok where he basically like goes through her memories <laughs> um, and like <laughs> figures out what her whole deal is. Um, but this is instead like Halbrand inserting himself as Finrod, um, her brother in her dream saying like, hey, we can rule or mm, we can psychology. fix Middle Earth or some bullshit. Um, and then we go like transport to them on the raft all of a sudden. And like they're kind of reliving that scene and it's still Halbrand trying to tempt it. And like they do this long sequence where she's like drowning underwater with a rope around her neck, which, you know. I, I, I was kind of feeling I want to be drowning underwater with <laughs> yeah. the rope around my neck at that point. Uh, it's just like, wh- I didn't understand what this was. Yeah. <laughs> like, if the point is that he's Sauron, you didn't need to do all this. The minute he stopped the dagger, yeah. um, like when she was going to stab him, that that was enough. That's like, okay, this is the real Sauron. I know what this is. Yeah. Um, and then he disappeared so he could have a cloak, uh, much like Damon Targaryen has all season in House of the Dragon. And he arrives at Mordor in a shot that's supposed to remind us of like Sam and Frodo at the Emin Muil <sighs> at the end of Fellowship. Um, oh, and there's a, sorry to jump back to Gandalf, but there's that whole thing where it's like, always trust your nose. Um, it's like, uh, what? Oh God, it's Moria. Like I, Oh my god. It's the Moria mm-hmm. bit. It's Gandalf finds the way out because the air smells fresher in Moria. Exactly. No, it's oh. the exact same lines. Um I had flagged that. It's oh, um I hate this. It's just like, what are we doing here? Um it, like it it's fun. Like I said, like when we talked about that Moria episode, I'm like, oh, this is cool. I can't remember if that was in Tolkien's work or not, but um like it worked in the moment and like the way the films had been building up the way things smell in the world. I'm like, okay, I can get behind it. But this is just like Oh, we're saying this so that you instantly connect that this is Gandalf. I'm like, but but why? He isn't shouldn't even be here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's 
I, I don't know. It's they, uh, they, they, they don't trust us. Like, they don't trust us as an audience, which, to be fair, like, if I were that fucking stupid all the time, I also wouldn't trust anyone because I would just know that everybody else was smarter than me and that would freak me out. Um, And, like, to be honest, I, I feel like especially coming off the high that was Wednesday and Wednesday's episode of Andor and then coming to this, I'm like, like, in some ways, Andor is kind of comforting to me because I'm like, okay, good. Like, I know I'm not crazy for wanting this quality of stuff. This quality of show writing is actually possible. And The Rings of Power is just an abomination and one that just should be consigned to the dustbin of history as quickly as possible. Yeah, I really need to thank uh, Andor, House of the Dragon, and Better Call Saul. Uh, because if not for those shows, the other TV I watched this year were Boba Fett, <laughs> Kenobi, and now this show. Oof. And all three of those are just like dog shit. Uh, there's really little, little else I can say about it. So uh, I'm going to cap us there. Hopefully we have two to three years before season two comes around. <laughs> um, perhaps we'll be, say better things then or have a better format. I will say like TV does have the benefit that theoretically they could fire all the showrunners and like fix some of the stuff. Yeah. But because the other thing, like we said, like I said, I wanted like the Mordor and the ring stuff to be like episode one and two. Theoretically, that's where it ended. So you can basically just tell a brand new story yeah. if you really wanted to. Yeah. Um, so God willing, they will. Yep. Uh, before we head over into our Andor coverage, because, you know, you might not have been expecting that, we're going to put that after our token token musical break. <laughs> but um, if you're going to hop off with us for now, A, you should go watch Andor to A, listen to our coverage, but B, mostly because it's a great television show, um, whether you like Star Wars or not. Yep. If this is where you're getting off today, thanks for joining us. You can support us at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you will get early access to episodes, bonus content, and your very own Middle Earth name, which we will read on air, such as... Flothamon of Palenka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Oh, real quickly, I do want to say I will be joining said patron, Johnny Flores Jr., on his Metal Gear podcast coming up next week. Um, So I will drop that in our Twitter feed and link it to listeners and our patrons in the Discord. I'm very excited to uh, be on with Johnny finally. We've been trying to do this forever. Also like to thank Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol, also known as Ed the Revelator. Iowendil, Haley Glyphs. Erenwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Ethernor of Kokarthad, aka Matty Hugh. Oh, fuck. And uh, we, we, we did not get around to giving I'm new sorry. names to our pals, uh, Cam and Zach, um, but we know that you're there. Also, we had two $5 patrons sign up uh, recently, so you want to read this first one? Yes. <laughs> this is this is one of the f- favorite uh, names I've translated. It is so in Cinder, and it is Bathy Ballard or Gelieri, which means Daniel from Sport. <laughs> <laughs> and our other new $5 patron is Stacy, um, who uh, we have not yet come up with the translated name yet, but they do have some overlap with Emily's name. So um, I bet you once we actually get Stacy's uh, proper Elvish name, it's going to be a banger. Yeah, I'm having the time of my life with it. You can send us emails of, about the Rings of Power or and or <laughs> at my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Insta and Twitter. And before the spoilers, I just want to say anyone who has joined us for our Rings of Power coverage, I hope it wasn't that bad, but also um, we really appreciate you all supporting us for signing up for our patron, for joining our Discord community. We we really love our little community that we're building here, and we hope to grow it over the next however many years. 
Hell yeah, Emily. Me and you get to finally talk about Andor, <laughs> like specifically on this podcast, and it's fully sanctioned now. Oh we God. are allowed to do this. <laughs> um, well, why, why don't you start? Okay, I'll start. I love, I love, I love this show. Uh, this show feels like every single time I sit down to watch the show Wednesdays, um, Connor and I usually get into a bit of a spat because he loves to bumble the fuck around for like an hour and a half after I get done with work being like, oh, I just have to dust this. And I'm like, sit down, shut up. It's Andor time. And then it's the best thing I've ever seen. And like, I've had multiple very bad days, like crying on the couch. We put Andor on and I'm like a toddler getting something like shiny, like jingled in front of them. Um, I Rogue One, I've been defending Rogue One since it came out in 2016. Um, and one of the reasons I have been defending Rogue One since it came out in 2016 is because about 10 minutes into that movie, uh, Cash and Andor comes on screen and shoots his wounded informant in the head to kill him. And that was the moment. I still remember watching that in the theater. It was sitting in a movie theater in Edinburgh, one of the really small ones, but still had a massive screen. And I remember watching that. And I remember having this feeling of, oh my fucking God, Star Wars can actually be cool again. And it was just this like, and then the whole rest of the movie. And, you know, like I, to be honest, didn't realize they were all going to die at the end of the movie because I'm a moron. Um, and I kind of went the whole way through being like, God, this is like a, this is a movie that like seriously engages with like the concept of the left and actually engages with the practicalities of rebellion and like the ethical quandaries of like, what do you do when you have to do things that are unsavory when you are dealing with this ontological evil of an all encompassing empire? And God, I can't believe that Star Wars is doing this. And then loved that movie and came out of it and found out that a whole bunch of people didn't like it and spent all this time being like, well, you're all fucking idiots. Uh, and now this show comes out out of nowhere, like totally out of left field, because all the other TV Star Wars TV series in the last year have been garbage. And this thing just is breathtaking, like from from literally minute one, episode one, when it starts with um, the Blade Runner-esque shot of Cash and walking down what looks like the Millennium Bridge in London. And then he's in a brothel, which I know everyone was you know, being making faces about, but it's a brothel that looks like the 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 nightclub and and uh, Knights of the Old Republic. And then he kills another guy, staring him in the face, headshot again. And it was just this moment of good. This show understands what made Cashin so good and compelling as a character in the first instance. And my God, every episode from there has just been the up and up and up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to just plant my flag here. I am also pro Rogue One. Um, I think, I think. It was the first time that a Star Wars movie felt like a movie-ass movie to me since the original trilogy. Yeah. Like, it just, it felt like a real movie. I could see, like, you know, shades of Guns of Navarone yes. and uh, the Dirty Dozen yeah. and all that kind of stuff in it. And those are the things that make me sing. And I feel that's a way to, like, honor the way George Lucas was doing his Flash Gordon in World War II stories yeah. without just doing another Kurosawa ripoff. Yeah. Um, like, and I've liked some of the Kurosawa stuff in Mando, but it's like... It feels too easy. It's almost like on cheat mode, like that you're uh, just going to the same well of movies and the same director. Whereas this one felt like, let's take some other influences that are tangential to what Lucas was working with and let's remix them into something new. Let's come up with a new tone. Um, and I, I, lo I love Rogue One. I, do, I mean, I have complaints with every Star Wars thing, but like I honestly think Rogue One is probably my favorite film yeah. since the original trilogy now. Fucking A. Um, I just think it's great, and um, so I just wanted to be clear. I am not one of the people Emily was talking about. <laughs> um, I think what I like about this show is that, first of all, I kind of want to talk about the production. Um, I know Emily's heard my spiel about this many times, but this might be somewhat informative to our audience. Um, most of the Disney Plus shows that include Star Wars and Marvel have been doing this 
thing where they're not actually employing a showrunner. They are basically casting a lead director and a lead writer and they are trying to make them opposite gender which you know is kind of its own issue um like i mean i like the fact that they have like a protocol that we need to get a woman in the leadership here that's great but like oh we're gonna pair one man and one woman you're not marrying people you're writing a tv show um but but because of that because like say kevin feige or dave filoni and john favreau and i do like dave filoni i don't want to like be mad at him but like there's no real guidance or vision. They basically have a Star Wars guy or a Marvel guy kind of overseeing everything. And then they just let these directors and writers like fill out an outline. Like, here's what we need you to do by episode five. We need to have a flashback where we know like the whole deal with this character's backstory. Episode six, they're going to get in costume for the first time or take off Mando's helmet or whatever it is. Um, it's very formulaic and it doesn't have any creative vision or like one driving force behind it. Um, and Andor is not like that. They have returned to a traditional television season production model where you have a showrunner and then you'll have individual writers and directors for each episode. What this show does specifically is they kind of group writer and director. So like like the same people worked on the first three episodes and then the same people working on the next three. And I think they kind of change it up for the last six that we don't know yet, but like there is a production or a model of production that is tried and tested and true that they are using now for this, that they haven't been using for all the other shows on Disney plus since it went live as a streaming service. And I think those things are paying dividends in ways that are almost intangible. Um, I can't like say, this show is good because this, but like you can see that there is a unified vision. You can see that there is a lot of thought that goes into the dialogue. Like they are very specific with what they are saying on screen, the words they are putting in their character's mouth and which characters are saying those words. Like it is not just like we need to hit these beats and we need to have a stormtrooper here because people like stormtroopers. And that's like easily merchandisable. Um, It's just, I, I, I can't even like wrap my head around the fact that like, they, they they kind of are reinventing the wheel because this is how good TV has been made forever. Yeah. But it feels like something new because we haven't seen this of late in general with pop culture streaming television, but specifically in the Disney realm of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I think there's kind of two elements to this. One is like, um, and I really highly recommend this. Uh, there's a, there's a docuseries on uh, Disney plus right now, which is about, it's called light and magic. And it's about the the creation of ILM industrial light and magic. Um, and, and one of the really interesting kind of the Genesis stories for, for ILM is that, the the kind of folks who were first setting up um, ILM when they were trying to get Star Wars 1977 off the ground, um, they didn't go to people who were in the film industry per se. They went to a whole bunch of ad guys who, like ad special effects guys, who were out of work once the kind of craze, the fad of having, you know, cool special effects, stop motion or whatever in commercials fell away. But then they also went and found like expert machinists. And these were a whole bunch of guys who were experts in very specific elements of what we now understand to be like, you know, special effects. Um, but, you know, they were machinists. They they were they were people who made very specific kind of uh, well machines. How many times can I say machinists? <laughs> um, and, and they went to them and they basically said, do what you are good at. And uh, there are other people here who will handle making it creatively and narratively coherent. You just need to focus on what you're doing. And if you focus on what you're good at, the rest of it will fall into place because we'll have a, a creative PM handling the rest. Um, and, and, and that is so 
And yeah, and of course, Islem is legendary. Islem has totally changed the face of cinema. I don't need to extol their virtues. I think we're probably all on the same page. But but that mindset, that 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 uh, organizational structure of get people who are good at what they are doing and have someone else handle the 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 kind of cohesion is exactly what you're articulating. There is the benefit of having a showrunner, and it's also quite literally what Tony Gilroy said his plan was with Andor, which is where he hired people who were good at their jobs first and told them to stop being Star Wars fans when they were working on this and to just treat it like it was any other job and he hired them because they were good at their job so if it's any other job it's going to be a good job and he's got such an incredible outcome of that and i think you know that that kind of element really speaks for itself so there's this one part where it's like you know divorcing the kind of production of this tv show from from the kind of juggernaut that is star wars and that's a huge dub in in one way but then there's this kind of second element to it which is that it's also in some ways even more deeply aware of what star wars is and can be than i would say a lot of the sequel movies um in that Mm -hmm. they they have understood that star wars presents a really unique opportunity for storytelling because it is Number one, a fantasy universe that is in space. And, and, and number two, it is understood by almost every single person in the world. Everyone knows Darth Vader. Everybody knows Luke Skywalker. People understand what a lightsaber means. They understand what stormtroopers mean. And, and you don't have to lay the groundwork. You don't have to lay the foundations for that, those elements of your story because they're already there. And, and you know, trillions of dollars of franchise work uh, pre and post Disney acquisition have, have done that for them. So what they've instead done is looked at the kinds of stories that they maybe wouldn't be able to tell if they didn't have this, this science-y, this space fantasy setting and 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 told those stories you know there are elements of the the kind of arguments that they are making via their narrative that exist in andor only because they have the grounding in star wars that wouldn't work in another kind of spy thriller like it wouldn't work if you took some of the arguments that they are making and put it in the americans or you you could but it would come off as kind of really crude old left marxist and people wouldn't really be into it but because they are aware of what star wars is and does it ends up being massively effective at telling a really interesting and kind of comprehensive story that is in itself a standalone story to the Skywalkers being, you know, melodramatic brats. And, and, and it, you know, if you just, if those were the only two things, you know, that, that ILM approach and then the kind of unique awareness of what Star Wars is, if those were the only two things that were good about the show, I would be in seventh heaven. And yet every single element that builds on it is, is just, it just gets better. It's just it, it, like, it, you know, it's like pulling a string. And instead of like all this shit falling out on you, it's like light and the angel singing falling out on you. It's so good and cohesive. And and yeah, yeah. I mean, th- you know, that's kind of my, my thing as the overall. But I, I feel like because each episode has in itself been so incredible and such like a really well done kind of contained piece of art at uh, Maybe we should do what we've been avoiding with uh, Rings of Power and kind of dive into to each episode uh, in some detail, not full detail, but some detail. Yeah, no, that sounds good to me. Uh, I'll just say I really like the point you're making that Tony Gilroy kind of understood Star Wars as a canvas um, and was able to just kind of build on top of that instead of worrying about honoring star wars i think one of the things that's wrong with pop culture right now is that everything is about the thing that it is yeah um there's this whole thing marvel movies are doing it i um 
you know, I like The Last Jedi, but like it is definitely about Star Wars. And it feels like this time it's forgetting the idea of Star Wars. And it's like, this is a thing about empires and rebels and the politics of putting together groups of people who all have their own individual grievances and coalescing that into something bigger and greater. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll say is also, this is also Star Wars looks good again. Yeah. That, that is probably my biggest problem with Kenobi and Boba Fett is that it didn't look good. Yeah. Um, and Star Wars to me should always look good. Yeah. That is what it is. It's spectacle. Odd crack. On Coke, I guess. All right. Um, sorry, I had to just get that in there before I forget. <laughs> but we can move on. Let's do episode one. Uh, this is basically where we meet uh, Andor. And this is the one you kind of discussed already where he kills. I was about to say he kills sexy cops. No, he sexily <laughs> kills cops. Um, he goes into a brothel. He's looking for his um, sister, supposedly. Yeah. At least that's his cover story here. And uh she, su- supposedly she was in and out of this place they're at. Um, I forget if this is more Lana or not. Yeah. Um, but either which way, um, a couple cops who are also at the brothel kind of bother him um, oh. or just giving him a hard time. And, and this is the important thing is, and, and, and I think the reason why I was immediately insanely impressed with the show besides Diego Luna's beautiful face is, is that they set up immediately that these are not standard cops. These are corporation cops. And this is a, this is a, a at least a city, if not an entire planet that is ruled by a corporation that is effectively a proxy for the empire, but is in itself its own kind of inert evil. And, and that, that is an incredibly sophisticated level to, to add to this. And, and, you know, that's five minutes in and, and, and it just gets better from there. Yeah. Using corporations as the vanguard of fascism is always going to work for me. Yeah. Um, and the fact that they do it without having to call is like, Hey, these guys are also fascists because they're whatever. Um, no, you just know right away. And I like how, so Andor leaves this brothel and then the two cops kind of follow him and Andor kind of accidentally kills one yeah. because they're like holding him up and basically trying to shake him down for money. He gives him a headbutt that snaps one guy's neck all the way back. I'd call oh. that like an incidental death. Yeah. Like I, I think he was mostly just trying to break free so he can fight them off. But the minute he killed him, he's like, well, the other guy, there's no point in keeping him alive, even if he's begging for death. Um, And I like that it just adds an edge to the character and it's an edge consistent with where he starts with Rogue One. Uh, So it clearly sets this is a starting point and I don't think he's going to necessarily lose that edge, but it at least gives us a place to ground us to the character that we knew from that movie. Yeah. And and I think it's also like, uh, so, so there's kind of two amazing things about this, right? Like I had this moment when, where, when this, this, um, this setup with you know him standing facing the camera and the two guys behind him and i should also flag now that most of the editing is done by tony gilroy's brother dan gilroy who is himself an oscar award-winning editor and holy shit when you hire oscar award-winning editors turns out you get beautiful editing anyways that aside there's this bit where you know camera on on cashin and the two cops behind him trying to hold him up and mug him and I and I had this moment of panic where I was like, oh, God, they're going to have him. This is going to this is going to end up like the start of Rogue One and they're not going to have him pull the trigger because they're going to try and do like, oh, he has to have a character arc. And that moment when they had him pull the trigger, when he's looking the crying guy in the eyes and pulls the trigger was like euphoria part two. I was like, I, I literally yelled. I literally yelled in my house. I was so thrilled. And and that that in itself was incredible because it was like good. They're not they're you know not pulling punches here. And they also know the kind of person who becomes a radical in the way that that Cash and Andor has 
become or is a radical. And they know that you don't start from timidity in a lot of ways. So that was good. That was a great sense of self-awareness. But then there's also this kind of slightly maligned element of the the brothel and, and the conversation that he has um, cash in between him and, and the, I don't know if she's a madam or if she's a worker herself. It was, you know, I joked about it a lot. It's like, oh, Star Wars lost its virginity. But I think in comparison, especially to the Rings of Power, where there are uh, gestures at sex, um, but it's a totally unerotic version of sex. You know, there's no sensuality to it. It's just like, you know, an acknowledgement that sometimes people fuck uh, with no sort of bells and whistles on it. The the, the scene in, in the brothel and then the kind of whole element of, of Cashin's plot until he gets back home and has to deal with mom and has this like, it, you know, Sex is not overtly referenced in any way. And yet through the sort of sensuality and eroticism of what is happening, you understand that this is a brothel. You understand that there is an element of sex going on here. You don't need to be told that these people, you don't need to have a character look into the camera and be like, these people are going to go have sex now to know that there is like sex underlining every single single element of this kind of interaction. And and that to me was, was brilliant, number one, because Star Wars has lacked sex in really cringe ways for a long time. Or when it's tried to do sex, it's been the prequel sex, which is just a nightmare in itself. Um, but number two, it also recognizes that 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 there is a part of these heightened emotions that go hand in hand with whether it's like actual like or like practical organizing on the left, or or whether it's uh, you know not that I have experience of an actual revolution, but whether it's an actual revolution, there is a, an element to these heightened emotions that are sort of inarticulable uh, as human beings, and and they do sometimes get you know either transmuted into just like outright eroticism, or they get transmuted into violence, and and those those moments balance on the edge of a knife. And to see a TV show, a Disney TV show, no less, understand how thin that knife is that you're balancing on, how thin that edge is, and portray it so beautifully as going one the other, one the other, is like... I mean, fuck, like Pauline Kale, like, you know, God rest her. But like Pauline Kale, I don't think could have criticized this show too much. And that feels like a massive win. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Even if I hadn't known it was a brothel because... Our stupid media these days means we have to broadcast everything. It's like Andor opens in a brothel. Oh my God. Like the minute Andor walks up to the doorman's guy, he's like, You gotta have money on you, no weapons. I'm like, yeah. there's only a couple of places where this kind of you know security check is gonna happen. Like the context clues are there. It's not a kid's um, playground. There's <laughs> there's also um in these first three episodes, there's a parallel storyline that is a flashback to young Cassian who's going by Casa. Yeah. And it is basically like a Lord of the Fly scenario, where we basically have a bunch of young kids. It looks like they may be upwards of age 14 or 15. They are speaking, um, what's the language here? Uh, it Denari? is Canari, uh, yep. Canari, there it is. Um, but they're not telling us what they're actually saying. We are relying on the performance of a bunch of kid actors, and it's fantastic. Yep. And basically, they see that a shuttle goes down near them. I think it's like an old Republic ship, was it? it well, or was it old se Separatist ship? Yeah, so it has like CIS, which is a confederation of independent systems, the Separatists. It has CIS like marking on it, but um, Marva, uh, Aunt Petunia, uh, Fiona Shaw, Irish lesbian icon, uh, identifies it by name as a rebel or a Republic ship. So we're still kind of question mark about who it is or why. Yeah. 
So um, we'll just kind of use that to start kind of moving into episode two. Um, one thing this show does several times actually is establish a wide set of characters and they all clearly have motivations, desires, interiority. Yep. Um, we go to essentially Cassian's home for now, uh, which is on Ferrix. Um, and we get to meet his little like mining town, oh. blue collar. Um, I guess it's not a mining town. It's more like a junk scrap or a junkyard yeah. scrap heap kind of place where they just recycle metal or something like that yeah. um, but it's very very wrapped up in working class aesthetics yeah um, we see people with hard hats we see like a giant guy on an anvil that kind of rings the bell to say the workday started oh, and ended um, we see a whole wall of gloves which i love the symbology there is like all these hands working together yeah and um it is like a great setup. We meet a bunch of characters here. You mentioned on Petunia, we meet Bix, who is just like the hottest oh. lady I've ever seen in my life. Yep. And uh, we just start seeing that Cassian's now on the run from the cops. And with the exception of the one guy, Tim, uh, everyone else <laughs> in this town is ready to like put their lives on the line for Andor. And even if not for Andor, they're not going to give in to these corporate pushover cops yeah. um, that are coming in in force looking for this guy who's supposedly from Canary, um, who supposedly killed two cops. Um, there is solidarity here that doesn't have to be spoken or said, oh, we all stick together like good waffles. We all stick together. Um, we can tell this by how everyone's interacting with each other. The minute Tim, you know, Tim essentially swats Andor. He basically calls the <laughs> cops and says, hey, the fugitive you're looking for is here. And everyone who figures us out is super pissed at him. Yeah. Like, how could you? Like, how could you betray us? You are not supposed to go to the cops with any of this shit. And it's they're not even, like, spelling that out. That's me saying it. Like, yeah. they are very good at letting the performance and the subtext speak for what the what is actually going on. Yeah. Uh, there, so there's something kind of really deeply emotionally affecting for me about this episode, the, these the series so far, uh, not just because, you know, these are characters I love and I love Star Wars, um, but especially as we'll see when we get into episode four. Um, so so this TV series filmed in Britain um, and not just in the sense that the studio was in Britain. You can tell that this series is intimately aware of and connected to Britishness uh, for better or for worse and also Scottishness as we'll get into in later episodes and 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 uh, you know I, you are uh, I'm really grateful that you bring up the fact that the industry the heavy industry in um in the in in Ferrix is is not mining um is uh stripping uh old old ships uh, which is just like it looks like Jedi Fallen Order but but the reason why this is really emotionally affecting for me is because because the city I live in right now um, Dundee uh is uh a, a deindustrial town it was absolutely ravaged by uh deindustrialization um most of the jobs most of the major employers packed up and went away and industry really hasn't come back it's it is routinely one of the the poorest cities in 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 uh, the western world it is the the drug deaths capital of Europe. It's not a very happy place. Um, but the 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 industry that that kind of remains, the heavy industry that does remain, is stripping and repairing oil rigs uh, that go out in the North Sea. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of my favorite things in the world is to stand on the hill and look at the the big fucking oil rigs that are in in the Tay River um, and and watch the the repairs or the stripping happen. And and one of the things that um, really looms large in the industrial history of Dundee is, you know, there were three J's that, that governed Dundee's industry. It was jute, jam, and journalism. Um, and jute is is a, a rope or, or swine of flax-based fiber um, that uh, is pulled from from uh, uh, like a, a fiber that is 
predominantly farmed in in India, in Calcutta. Um, And uh, this is all intimately, of course, connected to the British Empire. And and the flax, the jute rope, the jute fibers were brought over from Calcutta and uh, and heckled, literally heckled. uh, That's where we get the term heckle to heckle someone from. uh, Is And they were heckled in, in, in Dundee and turned into twine and turned into rope because this is a whaling city. And then it went out from there. Um, and the jute industry disappeared. You know, I lived uh, a minute away from uh, probably about 10 different empty jute mills that are now abandoned uh, and sit there as testaments to to the sort of collapsed industry of Dundee. Um, and so to see this marriage of this kind of de-industrial or slightly in, you know, peri-industrial town in this literal stripping of these imperial ships, um, which reminds me so much of Dundee. And then to see that brought into this kind of union with this third worldist approach where, you know, it is, uh, we'll call it gently, it's a multicultural town, but it's really not. It's predominantly black and brown city that that, that Andor lives in and that that Ferrix is. And, and the, the resistance that we see um, the the people of Farrick show to the corporation cops is not like the the sort of uh, American or British resistance of like protests with placards. It is far more of a piece with like the FLN and that kind of coherent community based community oriented resistance that like cinematically I think we see best in the the Battle of Algiers um, and and you know that really affecting scene where they're all smacking the metal together. You know that to me was like. There is this false animosity between, you know, not that it's like a current or existent thing, but there's this sort of false dichotomy between Dundee and, and, and India. And these are two things that are in competition and one had to suffer so that the other could benefit. And, you know, in, in a serious political sense, this isn't true. And this TV show agrees with that. It seems to agree with that. And it says, this isn't true. These two things, these two elements can come together. And when they come together, they can stand against uh, the might of uh, of an of an empire. And that is so like... I can't believe this show is real. <laughs> I just yeah, can't. And I'm glad I'm glad you're here because there's a lot this show is very Scottish and mm-hmm. I'm not gonna be able to talk to that meaningfully. So I'm so glad that um I am doing this with you. Um and yeah, that whole metal clanging thing, and we're kind of slowly moving into episode three here, um, is very effective because it's not only that this community has this kind of like warning signal or whatever you want to call it, um, but that it's very much built on their day-to-day life. These are just like scrap metals that they all have, and they have these little metal batons, and they just clang the metal, and everyone knows what that is. It's not like they have some super radio that everyone blasts out or something that feels not of a piece with the rest of this community and this culture. Uh, It is very much that their strength is in their working hands and what they do and what they produce. Um, I, I don't know. I just really love it. Um, but this is where um, the narcos, the narcos, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, the, the corpos come in. Um, the corpos is what they refer to as this corporate security team. There is kind of one main character in there. His name is Karn, I believe. Mm. Um, I think he has a first name too, but I'm forgetting it right now. Um, but he basically comes in with a team of 14 and it's like, oh, these are just fucking, you know, scrap workers. Like, what the hell are they going to do? We're going to march in with our big guns. We got this one stout Scottish guy yeah, who like, brilliant. he's Masterful. like all about like being a petty cop, um, a petty dictator of I, sorts. I would so he's also like, encourage all of our listeners to look up the Orange Order uh, and you will suddenly understand why everyone in Scotland who watched this TV show lost their fucking minds at this, this fuck and cop of theirs yeah um and they come in uh they come in a with this wonderful giant pyramid ass ship um (laughs) that is very cool because it just looks like something monolithic and something that like 
I don't know, corporate strategy would come up with. <laughs> um, it's like, and it's also like daunting. It's like a monolith from 2001, like, oh, fuck. Um, but then you see that their actual dropships are like the former um, Republic dropships that were dropping stormtroopers off in Attack of the Clones, <laughs> which I think is immediately completely tying you to the fact that excess military spending spills yeah. off into private security and police work, um, <laughs> which shit, they yeah. don't, they, again, they do not say this, but um, it's immediately clear to me. It's like, oh, this is very much the point. It's not supposed to be an Easter egg. It's like, oh, that's the attack of the clone ship. It's like, no, this is about the overspill of military spending into private security. That's exactly what this is all about. Um, and then we see them come to this town and they basically, well, I, I want to pull back a little bit because Andor is trying to get off world and he has like this imperial like device that he can sell that he can trade for passage off and Bix knows a guy and that guy is Stellan Skarsgård who goes by Luthen and um, while the Corpos are trying to close in on this Ferrix town to find their fugitive. Luthen is also on his way there because he wants to get in and he wants to specifically recruit Andor because he thinks Andor has a little more juice to him, can be very valuable <laughs> to this rebellion cause. And um, so basically you have these parallel storylines where the Corpos are coming in to try and get Andor and Luthen is trying to come in and get Andor, but Luthen trying to do it with I wouldn't call it an olive branch, but he's like, I'm here for you. I think you're better for this. Don't you want to fight these bastards for real? Yeah. Um, instead of like having your own little petty rebellion, how about doing something just a little bit bigger, a little bit above where you're aiming for now? God, this show's so fucking crazy. Cause you're right. That is the total, like I had completely forgotten about how insane it is that this, this show has a scene. The show literally has a scene where it tells the main character, your one man rebellion is effectively meaningless against the massive cosmically scaled evil of the empire. And if you don't get organized, then your little rebellion, your little individualism means jack shit. I cannot believe the show is real. <laughs> like, Oh my God. Um, the, the other thing that like I was kind of enormously affected by in, in this show because I love Fiona Shaw, is while all of this is happening, um, she Fiona Shaw is in the house and the Corpos have come into her house that she shares with Cash and Andor, which is, well, because he's her son, uh, foster son. Uh, very funny as well that he's got this like bedroom that's like very like normal looking, which means at the age that we meet Jin, where she's like uh, in a prison, um, Cash is at home with his teddy bear. So what is this whole in Rogue One? I've been in this fight since I was six years old. No, you weren't, you bitch. Anyways, uh, all of that said, uh, Fiona Shaw is just you know, putting on a, a phenomenal performance where she's antagonizing the cops who are in her house. And she's, you know, an older woman who is not hiding the fact that she is older. They're not overly aging her to make a joke about her age, nor are they hiding from the fact that she is a 64-year-old woman. They're letting a 64-year-old woman look and behave like a 64-year-old woman, which is revolutionary. But she's sitting there and, and, and basically psychologically torturing these cops. And she's saying... All of the banging metal that you hear, this is what a reckoning sounds like. Um, and the thing you should be scared of is not the noise, but when it stops. And we never really see what happens when it stops. We don't know. that. That is something that we have not had. That is a question we have not answered yet. We may never have it answered. But the enormity of her saying you should be scared when this stops helps to get us freaked out. Like, we're obviously against the 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 cops, but but there is something sort of like... There's an, there's an element of understanding what personal dynamism looks like and using it to your advantage and not needing to have a house collapse on a major, a burning house collapse on a major character or a literal volcano go off 
to ratchet up the tension. And and the show understands that it's the little moments of interaction between people who don't fully understand one another or who are, you know, diegetically opposed to one another, diametrically rather opposed to one another. Um, it knows that that is where the real tension in a story and in the world comes from, and it uses it to just brilliant effect. Yeah, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think they work in some of that metallic clanging into um, the opening credits for episode six, which is another like big blow up episode. So I really love that. Um, that might be a thing. Um, but yeah, so anyways, um, Andor and Luthen, they meet and Andor kind of reluctantly agrees to go along with him. But then the Corpos come in and surround them in a warehouse. Um, I just want to call out because the little shootout they have, I think is excellent. It's yeah. very Spielbergian to me because there's a lot of environmental stuff going off. There's all these chains and big chunks of old machinery that are kind of flying around yeah. um, out of control of our characters. It feels like it's something that should be in an Indiana Jones movie. And I mean that with complete affection. I th thought it ruled. Yeah. Um, and then eventually they're able to get the, you know, the slip on the 14 corpos that come. And then like we kind of end with Luthen uh, and Andor driving away on a speeder oh, bike wait, and making sorry. their way to I have Luthen. to talk about this because this is this oh, my my household. When we watched this, we were screaming, yelling, uh, delighted, just uh, uh, this strategy. Yes. So they send out a speeder. That looks like an old Junker 70s car. Uh, they send out a speeder that blows itself, like blows up uh, partially in front of all the corpos. And the corpos think that the guys have just died. They've managed to shoot the, the speeder down and they've killed Cashin and Luthen. And all of the cops get closer to the, the burned out shell of the car. And it's only when all of the cops have gathered around the burned out shell of the car that they light the, the they trigger the bomb that they've attached to the car now we were screaming and yelling because this is this is brilliant it's also a documented strategy now i'm going to take as morally neutral of a tone here as i possibly can but this is something that the ira did uh quite often the ira and the fln actually did quite often in their their respective resistance movements both against the the brits uh and against the french um and, and this tactic of uh triggering a uh, sort of allowing your enemy to think that they've won so that they get close to the thing where they they think you are and then blowing the fuck out of them uh in mass so that you can escape in the other direction is is a documented uh radical militant group strategy and so to see that actually done here and with a cool looking 70s speeder car uh was one of these things where like not only was it incredible because it looked fucking phenomenal but it was also incredible because it said that the people who were working on this show were aware of their history and they weren't scared of being aware of the world around them um and not having the need to like do a winking look at the camera being like haha remember jerry adams in the raw um and, and, and that was just you know this was a sh this is a show that is confident and it's a show that is confident because it's good yeah and speaking of the aesthetic real quick like you mentioned the 70s style car everything in this show has the aesthetic of futuristic as envisioned by people in the 70s yeah. which is also why rogue one i thought was banger and like i don't want to get too hard on other star wars properties but sometimes i feel like they go too far with well we know how stuff works in the year 2022 where everything's wireless and digital so we're just gonna like kind of do that everything's a hologram um and that's why i liked rogue one having like we have to hook up wires and we yeah. have to copy things to data discs and a lot of the aesthetic here in this entire series 
series is great. Um, but anyways, episode three kind of ends with these dual timelines converging, um, not converging, but kind of like overlaid running parallel to each other. We see Casa as a kid um, being kind of picked up by a younger Aunt Petunia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have the character's name in front of me, <laughs> um, but that's kind of like how he got into all of this and how he got out of the Kingdom of the Flies scenario he was in with the little kids. Um, and that's kind of also um, matched up against him going with Luthen and starting his journey towards the rebellion or whatever. It's almost like the scenes with um, him as a young kid and then going off with Aunt Petunia is like the end of like one act of his life. Yeah. And then this is also another marker that he is now off onto probably his last act if we want to oh, consider like Rogue no. One the end of the <laughs> act three of uh, Andor's uh, life. Uh, something like that. Oh, but, sad. Uh, I really love And it's very emotionally affecting in the moment because you have um, young Andor and older Andor kind of looking at these new parental figures in their life, sort of, with both uncertainty, but there's also sun on the horizon. There's possibly a new beginning. It, it just <sighs> makes you feel good and warm inside and not because, like, I relate to Andor, but mostly because this is good fucking television. This is how you write television. Yep. This is how you make it affecting. I care about all the characters we met in the show through the first three episodes. And then going into the next three episodes, starting with episode four, we get a whole new cast of characters that we start falling in love with. Um, oh, God. Before we focus on Andor, I want to say that episode four is really when the Imperial side comes in properly. Um, we get uh, one of Game of Thrones' best alums, Anton Lesser, as like major... I'm going to say Pederast, but that's definitely not his name. <laughs> it's like Patagonia or something like that. Um, but like, and one thing the show does really well is introduce a whole slew of Imperial people and they're all clearly fascist, yep. but they are all fascist uniquely in their ways and they're different than the fascists that were the Corpos cops. Um, you, there's cowards, there's true believers, there's brave people. It shows that fascism isn't like a personality type. Yeah. Um, it is something more. It is ideology. It is action. Um, it is who you have your community in solidarity with, AKA the empire. Yeah. Um, and that I think is one of the most mind blowing things about this is they aren't just all like Tarkin clones. Yeah. Like every imp is their own type of weird, awful fascist. And some of them are really enjoyable chewing that scenery because the actors they got for them are all great. Yeah. And, and I think this is also re- really the impressive thing, the really kind of uh, quote unquote sophisticated element of this is that it, there is a clear class differentiation between the guys who are the Corpo cops and the guys who are the Imperials. Um, and and the Corpo cops, you've got the like, you have, and this is the thing, this is the moment when I was like, the show fucking rules beyond belief is that all of the guys who are in the Corpo cops have working class British accents. They are distinctly working class British accents, working class Scottish accents. You hear them and you know that these guys don't come from a rich background. And then you've got Kyle Soller's character, who we later learn comes from something of a lower middle class background. And and there's a clear class component there, which is these are the guys who are not rich enough to get into the, the proper bureaucracy. And then you cut to the empire and they all have RP, like like received pronunciation, uh, educated and, and quote unquote articulate British accents, properly British accents. And the reason why I know that they have done this conscientiously is because the blonde imperial, who I think is a phenomenal actor and has done a really great 
uh, job in the show so far, it, she's she's Irish. Uh, so that is not her accent, which means she has been trained up on that specific accent and, and has either made the choice or was directed to do that accent. And that means it was a conscious decision and they know what that accent evokes. So we're not having to play around with this shit of being like, oh, well, well, you know, working class accents don't mean anything in the fantasy world. And, you know, when you come in and watch a fantasy world as an audience member, all of your weird preconceptions around class or around race suddenly melt away because it's all fantasy. No, the show knows what you think of people who sound posh or it, and it knows what you think of people who are black or or who who have working class accents. And it plays on that to immense, immense effect and so successfully. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the one downside of not being able to do these first six episodes individually is that actor, the one you mentioned, the Irish lady, is fantastic. And I love the stuff they got going on with her because she sees all these disparate, random things happening against the Empire. And she's like, this is too random to be random. Um, she's doing some great work. They got... Um, her assistant has these like Peter Cushing esque like yeah. brow and jaw lines, which really works well for me because Peter Cushing is my favorite performance in any Star Wars. Um, I just love everything about it. And like I mentioned, Anton Lesser, who was Kyburn in Game of Thrones, is like the perfect head of the Imperial Security Bureau um, because he's both soft spoken but also forceful. Yeah. Um, like he demands attention and authority, even though he isn't necessarily like spitting in someone's face about it yeah um he's able to address people with just his like stately demeanor which i really love for him yeah and and there's but, this also a bit where like so so the I irish girl who's not irish in the show the blonde imperial is is obviously being played in a rivalry against the only black imperial we've seen within the bureaucracy so far and if this goes and we don't know yet but if this goes in the direction that i suspect it's going these two are going to get played against each other and played off each other and 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 again i'm just hoping here and there's every chance that i'm going to be wrong but i suspect what this this show is trying to say or imply is that for these marginalized groups or groups that are you know to us visibly marginalized in one way or another by our preconceptions as the audience trying to maneuver within the edifices of the of your oppressor will never succeed and you will have to uh breach solidarity with other marginalized groups and probably sacrifice parts of yourself in order to succeed within these structures and and therefore the the correct maneuver is actually to say fuck these guys we are both going out together uh, and and it would be you know white women in solidarity with black men and and not you know, one stepping on the other's head trying to get to the top because it is a soulless maneuver. And and even seeing that and comparing it to whatever the fuck is going on in the rings of power is again just an, an immense balm on uh you know like a like a balm on my cranky ass soul. On the other side of things, back with Andor, we get to meet our first members of, I will call them the Rebellion, I assume they are, um, even though they're kind of mom on that point, like specifically, they don't explicitly say it. Um, we get a lot of great new characters, once again, and they all have interiority. Um, we have our space lesbians, our space communist lesbians. <laughs> um, one is played by Faye Marseille, who most people will recognize as the waif from Game of Thrones. She worked with Ariane Bravos. Um, I should call out that Nina Gold is the casting director of Andor, and she was also the casting director of Thrones. Um, so I imagine that's why all this overlap is happening. Um, and then she has her partner, Cinta, who is played by a South Asian actor. I don't have her name handy. Um, then we have a bunch of dudes. We have Nemec, who is our 17-year-old oh. Marxist-Leninist, or possibly a Trotskyist, or a Trot, we'll He's say. He's ours. Uh, 
And then <laughs> um, we have Skeen, who um, is an actor I know as John Quincy Adams from the old HBO <laughs> yeah. John Adams series, but he was recently in The Bear. Um, he's a guy who's kind of the most at odds with Andor, but it doesn't feel like it is forced conflict just because two characters are sharing a space, but rather there is some ideological difference that will actually reveal themselves to be kind of ideological similarity by the end of episode six. Um, and that actually causes tension that they're more alike than dissimilar, as you'd think. Um, but, and then we meet a couple guys or a couple former, there's a former stormtrooper that's in the mix. That's Tamarin. Um, and they have a guy on the inside who is, um, Lieutenant Korn, I think is his name. Something like um, that, yeah. And, and uh, so, like, they have a whole team here, and Andor seems to be a last-minute addition, but um, Val, who is the lead who's played by Faye Marseille, um, she was forced to take Andor on because of Luthen's insistence. Um, Andor's just here being for the pay, like he has paid like 30,000 credits for it in advance with like a sky kyber crystal. Um, but what really makes, I think episodes four and five work is that we just really sit with this group of characters. And there's this great line. I think it's an episode five where it's like, everyone has their own rebellion. Um, and this is us finding out everyone has their own wrongs that, um, were inflicted upon them by the empire and what episode six will eventually reveal to us is that by itself is not actually enough to coalesce around a rebellion or a single set of goals and ideals. Um, you need to actually work to combine everyone's rebellions or else people will be like, it's me versus everybody else instead of all of us versus the empire. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I, I agree with that emphatically. The thing that I am, like bouncing in my chair excited to talk about is the setting of this and and this episode like i know i've said this about every episode of this series and that we've talked to uh, talked about so far but this episode like i felt like i was glowing when i was watching it and just every minute of it i was like there's no way this can get better and then it got better and the reason this got better is because this is a the, it was filmed 10 miles up the road from my house um it was filmed in perthshire uh, in the highlands uh in the scottish highlands uh and the dam that we see in these three episodes is uh is a dam Crahan dam uh on uh, in Loch Awe and on the west coast of Scotland uh it is it, it's not just that the scenery is the place that I live it's that they are aware of, of the 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 place that I live and what it means and so the plot that you know this planet Aldani they talk about how um they are in the highlands of Aldani and the highlands were cleared uh by the empire and and the people who lived in the highlands um and were cleared out of the highlands were sent to to the and they literally say the word and I just like I felt like my heart exploded they say um the industrial lowlands uh, and the new towns in the industrial lowlands and and I you know I felt like my whole life was building to this cuz cuz the the industrial lowlands is of course Scotland uh, the Scottish central belt is the lowlands of Scotland it is uh, industrial or post industrial uh, there were fact the highland clearances and in, in, in which landlords cleared uh tenant crofters off of uh, violently cleared them off uh their land in the highlands and sent them all to uh to the the lowlands the new towns scottish new towns are a thrice scottish phenomenon there's the 18th century scottish new towns if you've been to edinburgh it's the new town of edinburgh is the sort of apotheosis of this this movement this this uh urban 
urban design, urban planning movement, but then there's also the, the the new towns of the 20th century, and these are the towns that sprang up after World War II and were conscientiously designed um, at, at, on sort of egalitarian uh, principles. Now, not fully egalitarian principles, but these are the places that you know people tend to you know besmirch as like shitty looking or because they have brutalist architecture. But but you know there, there's Cumbernauld and uh, the West Coast is uh, near Glasgow is a really good example of this, and it's it's these these towns and these town centers that are built with with people in mind rather than businesses or rather than cars and it is a distinctly Scottish phenomenon um, and so to hear them say acknowledge the Highlands clearances to acknowledge the industrial Scottish low, lowlands to acknowledge the new town and and then to include you know they name check I think something like McLean and then there there's a place uh, uh Al Kenzie is the 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 imperial base which sounds like Mackenzie which is of course uh, an immensely important surname uh, or clan in Scottish history. Uh, McLean, of course, like John McLean, uh, the, the the Scottish communist and, and Republican. Um, and oh, not the diehard? The, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and to see all of this stuff recognized. And then, of course, like the eye, the, this, this celestial uh, event that they talk about, which, which has very clear analogs to a whole bunch of um, Celtic, pagan, and Christian celebrations. And to see how much they'd embraced not just filming in Scotland because it's beautiful, but being aware of its culture. I like, you know, I love living where I live. Um, I have gone through a lot of shit to live here. It's very uh, difficult uh, for me to be 5,000 miles away from my parents. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I made the choice that I did for a reason. And seeing um, the reason why I love this country uh, reflected in a TV show that's already based off of a, a, a story, Star Wars, that I love so much was like, God damn, this fucking rocks. And then to see a left wing bent on it because they're like, yeah, we're going to acknowledge Scotland's history, but we're going to acknowledge all the ways that people in Scotland got fucked over by the ruling class. And we're going to acknowledge the things that that are good and important about the culture that are totally distinct from Walter Scott's fucking bullshit version of it. And holy hell, like, holy hell. Um, I know you just said a lot of words, but I kind of want to hear a few more from you. Do you want to talk about Nemec's manifesto? Oh, Nemec. <laughs> God, this feels fake. Like, I can't believe, like, in the way that the Rings of Power feels fake because it's so bad, this show feels fake because it's so good. Um, There's like a, I don't know, I feel like this whole show is kind of talking to a very specific left-wing experience, and I kind of want to talk to Tony Gilroy about what he was doing in his 20s. Um, but... Uh, if you've been on the left, the established sort of organized left for any period of time, you will have inevitably met a uh uh, uh, usually a young man who, uh, having just been radicalized probably in the last five or ten years, is still incredibly enthusiastic about it, rightfully so, um, and and is trying to kind of, after years of alienation, trying to synthesize all of these, the, the sort of intellectual and political uh, freedom, liberation that is engendered by, by you know, Marxism and its various descendants. And and these guys tend to write a lot, right? Like, and, and, and I think there's this kind of, like, shitty kind of attack on, on a lot of these guys is like, oh, they're theory bros and they're all assholes. But like, you know, these guys are trying to come to grips with the sort of enormity of the the kind of wrong that is living under capitalism and li living under imperialism. And so, uh, you know, good on them for thinking to write. 
this idea that that Nemec, this 17 year old kid who's also a guerrilla fighter in the Highlands, is writing a manifesto because he's trying to put together all of these disparate thoughts in his mind about all of the ways in which the, the empire has has, you know, effectively ruined everybody's lives and, and destroyed the world. And and the extent to which, you know, as he articulates beautifully, uh, it's systemic and it's not just a question of the empire does one bad thing. It's the empire knows they don't need to do just one bad thing. They actually have to do about 20 different bad things because the sheer scale and scope and frequency of the bad things kind of drowns it out. And you just get used to, you know, it's the banality of evil, right? Like they're, well, not really that, sorry to Hannah Arendt, but like, you know, when evil happens at such a high frequency, um, it becomes part of the everyday humdrum. Um, and, you know, like there's a mass shooting today, today in America by a 15 year old, a fucking 15 year old got a gun and killed a whole bunch of people. And that's something that's going to be memory hold probably by the time this podcast actually goes goes to to press because the degree to which evil has become such a normal part of our lives is is unfathomable and and is sort of a punishing pace. And Nemec, the 17-year-old in a Star Wars writes about this and is penning a manifesto and he's he's marrying theory and praxis again in a Disney TV show I have to pinch myself. And it's also such a loving tribute to to all of the weirdo left-wing guys who who are just like this. And, you know, I would actually consider myself among these weirdo left-wing guys uh, who write these things because how else do you figure out the world? And to see him not treated as, uh, you know, some kind of dickhead asshole misogynist outlier and not to see him treated as a crank, but to see him given respect as someone who is both thoughtful and capable of of radical praxis is like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe this is Star Wars. I really can't. Yeah, it is truly remarkable. Um, I actually got super giddy that episode five did not end with their big plan to take down yeah. to steal this Imperial payroll because I was like, oh, I really hope they don't try to just squeeze this into 10 minutes at the end of an episode. I'm glad that they just went all in on we're going to use two uh, episodes to fully set this character up, not only establish who all these guys are around Andor, but establish a clear relationship they have with Andor and each other, um, which is something that gets very overlooked. People just think characters exist in a vacuum sometimes, especially in schlocky IP writing. Um, and I really appreciated that. Um, before we get to the final episode, I do think we should um, say something about Mon Mothma. <laughs> um, and I know people who... So me and Emily both bring a lot of Star Wars history outside of the main stories, um, like outside of the main films to this. Um, but mine is mostly based in the comics. And I have not seen a lot of Mon Mothma in there. Um, but so most of all of I've seen of her is like when she shows up in return of the Jedi for five <laughs> seconds. And then when she shows up in rogue one for like two minutes. Yeah. Um, so she is kind of a blank slate for me. And I, I have a bunch of star Wars friends who tells me she's, you know, space Hillary or super neoliberal. And of course, any kind of left wing side to politics will have people like this. Um, but she's kind of a blank slate for me going into the show, but all those things people have told me, they communicated to me in this without telling me those things based on how her home looks like the based on her relationship with Luthen, the way that her relationship with her daughter and her husband are all of those things are immediately transparent and i'm basically coming in with this with everyone else's notions of mon mothma but now i have one that's clearly defined by the show that's in line with all of that <laughs> god that's amazing to me as well because like 
yeah, I worried. I worried as well. I really worried when I saw that Mon Mothma was going to play a significant role. And you know what? Mia culpa, because when they released those first pictures of her, I got really mad about it. I got really mad about it because I was like, she's got all of this makeup on. And if you go look at Mon Mothma from uh, Return of, not Return of the King, Return of the Jedi, she's not wearing any makeup. And it's this very sort of, well, not wearing heavy makeup. And it's this very dressed down sort of 70s kind of liberated woman look. And oh God, look what they've done to her. They put her in these massive heels and this makeup. And I, I was mad about it and I was wrong to be mad about it. I prejudged it and I, and I got it wrong. Uh, and, and what they have done with her is again, immensely self-aware about the, 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 the sort of condition of womanhood of performed womanhood in, uh, in a pol- highly politicized situation, uh, like she's living in, but also just in, in life in general. And, uh, God, like, holy fuck, uh, it's really, really smartly done. Um, but also, uh, I really thought I was just going to hate her outright. And I actually feel a huge amount of sympathy for her because her husband seems like such a massive piece of shit. Um, I'd, like one of the most annoying pieces of shit ever in a Star Wars, probably like, I hope that Andor, uh, Cashin shoots him directly in the head unblinkingly because he's definitely got it coming, uh, in so many ways. And like, even that, like Mon Mothma in in canon so far is incredibly annoying, and yet they thought to give her an even more annoying counterpart, and uh, frankly, slightly annoying daughter, teenage daughter, and and in doing that, they've humanized her in a way that still allows you to be annoyed at her politically, but also allows you to go, man, her husband, woofed, <laughs> what what dick, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting to me is. We, you know, we have we have some leftist spaces where we talk about Star Wars in, and everyone is like, "Yeah, Mon Mothma's the shit. Mon Mothma sucks. Whatever, whatever. I hate her. I don't want her in the show." And like, I I definitely don't have those feelings, even if I know her politics are not mine. Um, she can be a compelling character, and people with those kind of politics can still be compelling too. And the way that they found to realize that, um, I think, is just really definitely done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, cool. and uh, we also. Um, I know Mon Mothma's husband is called Perrin Mothma, but we're probably going to call him Man Mothma uh, going forward. So just be prepared for that. Hell yeah. And now uh, I want to start by talking uh, the best episode of television ever made, yep. aka episode six, which was named The Eye, which is also the name of a Rings of Power episode, which is extremely funny. Uh, but there's something this show is doing, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go into a Metal Gear Solid analogy here, but... The way that Metal Gear Solid 3 is paced is like the big fireworks factories are the boss fights. They're like six or seven big boss fights over the course of a 10 hour game. Um, and the way they pace the game is perfect. It's like you have some very simple stuff building up to the first boss fight and that's a climax. They kind of like bring th- after that first boss fight, they bring things down. But then the next couple sections are a little more tense than that first section. And then it builds to a new climax that's just a little bit higher. And it's slowly escalating these climaxes so that each one lands more and more. Um, and I feel like we're getting that same rhythm with this show because we had the first three episodes built to a climax in Ferrix. And it's just with a bunch of corpo security guards, um, just 14 guys going into a single town. So it's like kind of small stakes but not really. But then the next three episodes kind of ratchet that up. Now we're going into an Imperial facility. We're not yet seeing stormtroopers or death troopers or anything like that. But now we're seeing a couple TIE fighters. And we can tell that 
the level of threat on the Imperial side is going up and the level of the gravity of what our protagonists are doing are going up. Yeah. And I feel like they're perfectly doing this where they build to a climax, bring things down, but it's still at a higher level than it was in the previous set of episodes so that each time they're kind of building to something more and more impactful. And it really pays off because episode six is just like, it's euphoria. It is like 20 minutes, 25 minutes of pure tension then total release, and then they have a whole denouement section that is rich with character um, interactions, with some bittersweetness, with kind of the fallout with skiing, and then also a zoom out to see what's going on with Mon Mothma and Luthen as they find out about this attack. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think how they're pacing this and how they're building to these climax is a big reason the show is working. Yep. Yep. And you know what, as well, is, is, and again, in in contrast to the Rings of Power, which just fails at every, every imaginable level, this, this series understands how to build tension and how to ratchet up that tension, as you're saying, without leaning on stuff that's stupid. Like, like to me, the, the kind of death fake out with the Sealder and having the burning house crash in on him, and then you cut to a different scene is kind of emblematic of the level of like they have things happen either things in the world or things between people just for the sake of happening and and this episode six of andor man what a fucking masterclass in writing um i there's not not a gunshot is fired until like probably the last 10 minutes of the episode maybe the last 20 minutes of the episode uh which is an amazing thing for an hour-long episode and and they build the tension i mean literally from two minutes into the episode i was gripping the side of my chair, freaking out because it was so tense. And and the way that they build this tension is not by having guns go off or have people get mad at one another for the sake of having people go bad at one another. They they play off of the things that we know are true. It's dramatic irony is what it is. You know, there, there's this bit where um, as as the the rebel guerrilla group are executing their plan to get in, um, the one of the there's a, there's a, just a brief blink and you'll miss it shot where one of the other commanders of uh, the other uh, imperial troop battalions kind of looks at the looks at the rebel group who are dressed up as imperial soldiers and looks at them kind of funny and obviously doesn't recognize them. And that's it. Nothing said about it. He doesn't say anything. He 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 doesn't he doesn't reach out to anyone. Nothing happens. You just see him and you know looking at his face that that he's he's got questions about these guys and that's enough to get your heart racing and that's it. They don't they don't build on it and then there's another bit where they they um they don't zoom in on anything, but they linger on a shot of muddy, a muddy hill. And it looks like you could slip on it. And if you slipped and fall, fell on it and didn't fall in the right way, you would immediately be clocked as not nimp. And, and they don't, no one, no one does slip or fall, but the possibility is there. The risk is there. And then when, when Val and, Val and Cinta are, are climbing up this massive ladder on the side of the dam, they just show all of the rungs and, and they show the feet, their feet going up the rungs. And you kind of have to wonder, oh my God, are they going to slip and fall? And it's just long enough for you to wonder, let your imagination go. Like it's just long enough for your imagination to run wild and the anxiety to run wild. And it never, it never happens. The bad thing doesn't happen because these are trained guerrilla fighters. They're good at what they do. And, and the things that go bad, go bad in ways that are understandable and, and ways that, that, you know, could have theoretically been, been mitigated for, but, but are totally predictable in, in terms of like, this is just how these things fuck up and is not this thing fucked up because it was an act of God. And, and they build the tension through heavy breathing and, and through, you know, dweeby fucking imperial radio transmission operators being dweeby fucking radio and uh, transmission officers. And, and 
everything, every cog that turns, turns because that cog was built to turn and not because it's being hammered into a different position and forced by some fucking overeager engineer to, to turn in the way that it doesn't want to turn. And, and just that lack of, you know, aggressive violence or like quote unquote heavy action until the last bit and, and yet not losing any of the tension for it despite that is, uh, is in so many ways just a, a triumph for Star Wars specifically. Yeah, honestly, like everything is working in conjunction here. Like they have these Eldani or the Dani rather um, natives who are coming here to watch this festival at a temple that's in the wake of an imperial facility. And they're all chanting and singing. And that's giving something that they cut back to. It adds like a rhythm to the cuts in the scene. Yeah. Um, so it's building tension the way that Tamarin is shouting orders to our uh, guerrilla fighters who are opposing its troopers. It gives it like a rhythm, almost like a heartbeat. Um, so you can just kind of feel everything ratcheting up. And also just the way that they like carry their guns and like walk and march, like everything feels of a purpose. And also it's just amazing to look at. Like they thought about shots that are there just so it looks cool. Like there's the shot of Val and Cinta underwater in their scuba gear. And it's an it's a shot, the camera's below them, they're swimming, and up in the sky, you can see one of the comets of the eye that's, like, passing over them. It's, you know, there's a million, like, metaphorical readings I can put on that, but I'm just like, this looks dope as hell. Yeah. Um, we see Val and Cinta do literally a scene from GoldenEye where they dive off a dam, like, bungee jump off it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Um, they're just so interested in shots that look good that I really appreciate. Again, Star Wars needs to look good to me. That's part of the appeal of Star Wars. And like this show just absolutely took all that. There's one instance that I'm forgetting because I know it's in my mind right now. Oh, um, when Val is placing the security jammers on the dam, um, there's the shot like that's in like the Imperial control room with a foregrounded Imperial officer. And in the background, in the shot, in soft focus, we see Val making the sprint back to her like safe hiding spot. Yeah. Um, and it's perfect. It is just one of the coolest looking shots I can remember in a Star Wars. It's a great use of focus, a great use of depth and perception. And it's helping tell the story and ratchet up tension because all this guard needs to do is turn like 90 degrees to his left. And then this whole plan is shot. Yeah. Um, and, Speaking to that, like, I also love that all these characters have their own little doubts and motivations. Like, I think it becomes clear that Vel has, I wouldn't say cold feet, but she's a little hesitant before she oh gets God, a go. Oh, God, that moment is beautiful. It's so fucking perfect. Oh, God. I, I totally forgotten about that. And you're right. She's so human and so sympathetic and she doesn't fail and she doesn't flounder but that moment of panic and you're like val val do it do it do it the whole time but you also totally sympathize and it, and 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 seeing her like stony face crack and seeing her moment of panic makes the whole thing feel so much more terrifying because if she's cracking and she's hard as nails oh fuck this is really serious that was oh god thank you for reminding me of that because that is such a great like it's like a 30 second shot and it's flawless yeah and i think it part of it is also her partner cinta is kind of her rock she's like come on call it let's go let's do this uh, but it's great and i think there's a couple other hints that cinta might be like the real rock of this team um, when they talk about how she lost her mind when she learned that tamarin was a former stormtrooper and um, that something horrific happened to her family or something like that um 
it's it's just very real and human. It's not like I don't want to do this. It's more like once I do this, everything's changed. Yeah. Everything's over. There is no going back. There's no mulligan on this. Once we go in for the kill, essentially, or for the steal, um, you know, life changes forever. There is no turning back from this whatsoever. Um, and then we get Space Aurora Borealis. Um, I guess all Aurora Borealis is Space Aurora Borealis. <laughs> um, but we do get this eye, um, which is basically, in simple terms, it's just this large meteor shower. Um, but they obviously put a lot of effort into making it look good. And they do this great thing where they, through the entire episode, there are comets going overhead. Sometimes it's just one or two. Um, but they slowly build it. And that they use that as another way to not necessarily build tension. But as you see more and more of these comets filling the sky, you know that you're getting closer and closer to everything like happening. Like all the bombs going off or whatever you want to call it. Like metaphorical bombs. There are not like actual bombs. Uh, <laughs> but like it's another way that you can tell like, oh, when all the comets are in the sky, that's when shit's really going to be going down. Um, a great visual indicator. They have these great shots. Uh, we mentioned TIE fighters. Like they have TIE oh. fighters kind of patrolling in these first two episodes. So they make like a singular TIE fighter seem oh. really menacing and cool in the previous episodes. Oh my God. And then okay. they have. Wait, sorry. I, I, oh my God. The show, man. The show. It's so fucking insanely good. Um, the the TIEs buzzing along the valleys in, in episodes four and five where they, they go really low across the land. And. Um, God damn, this show rocks. One of my favorite memories of all time was when I was up in Loch Ness as a, as a kid, uh, probably 10 years old, uh, and uh, up in the hills that surround Loch Ness, looking down at the loch. And um, Lossy Mouth RAF base is just uh, sort, sort of north and uh, never each other, east, east of, of uh, Loch Ness, of Inverness. Uh, and it's, a, it's an RAF, uh, Royal Air Force Base. And some of the RAF fighters from Lossie Mouth uh, went through the valley, went through the glen, the Great Glen, which is what it's called, uh, and 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 buzzed the water. And you just heard the sound of the fighter jet engines ricocheting off of every nook and cranny and every tree and every house and the water itself all around the loch as you watch these fighter jets skim the water. And it it is the memory that I talk about all the time whenever I talk about Loch Ness. It is the thing that I bring up all the time because it was so fucking cool to look down on these fighter jets. And then they did it in Andor. They did it in Andor. And I was like, this is how I know these guys paid attention to the country they're in because those 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 lossy mouth jets before lossy mouth got all weird and had to they had to redo the tarmac they did that all the time at Loch Ness and that that shows me that they know the place that they're filming in and they have an awareness of it and they are paying attention to the world around them and they're not existing in a vacuum and it just works to beautiful effect yeah it's really great and because they put in those uh couple scenes in the previous episodes where just a single tie fighter going by and it's like almost the end of the world or it might like ruin everything when we actually get to see um the nearby i think elzeni base um like they like raise the red alarm because they're not able to communicate to the facility the rebels are infiltrating so we get this awesome like sequence where we see like three um tie pilots like running through the catwalks and getting into their troopers we see them jumping into the top hatch of their tie fighters with the eye behind them like our friend zach has posted the same gift to our uh, little group chat like it's eight so times good. and i'm always happy that he does it um because it's cool it's like you built tension around these TIE fighters and then you're like, actually like, oh shit, here comes three of them. But also we're going to make this some of the coolest fucking thing you've ever seen in a movie ever at the same time. Like it is not ignoring the aesthetic to work on the plot and vice versa. Yep. Um, 
And this all basically builds. So that what they're doing is stealing an imperial payroll. So basically like stealing from a vault, which I a love that they have physical money here. Yeah. Um, because once again, I liked that This is a 1970s vision of the future and they yeah. wouldn't think of everything being on credit yet. Um, even though they call them credits in this world, never mind. <laughs> um, but, um, and this set piece that's in there first, they get the like, uh, Imperials that are working in the vault at the time to help them load up their escape ship, um, which is, you know, kind of a really great use of labor there. It's like, let's have them do the work for us, which yeah. I just love. Um, and then, you know, eventually some actual imps come and they have a shootout. And it's like, p partially reminds me of um, the shootout in the prison cell in A New Hope when yeah. they're trying to free Princess Leia. But it's not like them trying to recreate specific shots or, you know, having Han talk into a mic and say, <laughs> we're all fine here. Everybody's fine now. Thanks. How are you? Um, it is just like, it has that same sense of tension. Um, and like they even pull in the big gun that Chewie used in there, which I thought was a nice touch. And it just, the geography matters, the character interactions, they're trying to cover each other. Um, Andor's getting choked out and Nemec has to shoot the guy in the back that's choking him out. Yeah. Um, it's all expertly staged. I can see everything that was going on. There was no like shaky cam nonsense. Yep. And to be fair, um, Tony Gilroy uh, did write the Born Identity movies. Yeah. Um, so maybe he had some hand in the shaky cam fad of the 2000s. But yep. here, everything is stable. You can see everything that's happening. You see how the characters are communicating each other. And there's actual tension. I did not know, aside from Andor, who's going to live or die. And smartly, <gasps> unlike, say, a sealed door in the Rings of Power, <laughs> they're not really testing me with, yeah, like Andor's getting choked out. And I know he's not, but they're not like building an entire set piece or character emotions or like where is Andor for I very much want to speak with him kind of stuff um, I was still kind of nervous though when he was getting choked out I like I knew in the back of my head I know he makes it to Rogue One and then like shits the bed but I was still like oh god and then I, it was only after he was no longer being choked out that I was like wait you fucking moron you know he's fine and I think that's like one of the really effective like they've built up that tension and they've built up that sense of storytelling so that it didn't feel like a sealder it just felt like a guy getting choked out, choked to death in front of you. Yeah. And uh, I know we're off the rings of power, but I do want to remember now that they did not return to a seal door no. in this episode. <laughs> so they're basically doing with like an entire season cliffhanger that a seal door might have died. One of the three characters <laughs> we know lives until the Lord of the Rings stories, <laughs> um, or at least the last alliance. It is incredibly funny that they left that thread dangling. Incredible. Um, I could honestly talk about this forever. Um, oh. And I, honestly, there's probably 8 million things I'm going to be mad at myself for not mentioning. But um, in the efforts to keep this under two hours, I want to give Emily like anything else you want to say about this episode. The floor is all yours. Yes. Spoiler. Uh, Nemec gets crunched in the most viscerally horrifying way I've ever seen in a Star Wars film. And you know what? Like, actually, it's probably one of the worst kind of injuries I've seen. Uh, in a TV show or anything in a really long time because something heavy inside the ship that they're using to escape breaks loose and, oh God, just thinking about it makes me sick. Uh, it crunches him, literally folds him up, snaps his neck between him, this heavy thing in the wall, and he doesn't die. He doesn't die and he's still alive and he's paralyzed and he's in pain and, and he knows that he's paralyzed and he's freaking out about it. And he has to navigate. He's the, he's the one who knows how to navigate. And, you know, it, they do this kind of nice. I didn't even clock it until someone else pointed it out to me. But they they do the climb, climb thing, which is what K2 says to, to Cash and, um, and Jin at the end of Rogue One. I didn't clock that at all. I was just kind of 
try, quietly trying not to cry. Um, and and there was something beautiful in 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 all of that to me in in Nemec dying but not dying. Like he 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 was badly brutally injured in a in effectively a freak accident um there was nothing anyone could have done to have stopped it and yet the tragedy is still there and he didn't die immediately so they kind of drag it out in the worst way possible and and he's still there to do what he needs to do and he's still aware and conscious and there's that horrible drawn out trauma you know it's the kind of thing that that nemec himself even references and that there's so many bad things going on that one bad thing in itself doesn't really stick out and and that scene was like again one of these moments. It's the it's the equivalent to Cash and shooting the injured uh injured uh informant in a in a lot of ways in, in terms of the kind of breathtaking impact it has and and the fact that they did that and they had the balls to do that and then they had the balls to do it in a different way where he didn't just die immediately was good. It was just good and I'm sad and I'm mad that Nemec is gone and he he's our he's our boy on in in the galaxy far far away but like. Man, they they know how to treat a story. They really do. Yeah, he gets crushed by capital, no less. It's one of the like stacks of coins <laughs> oh that God, like crushes right. him. Oh God! Uh, so as uh, so, uh, yeah, no, it was great. He is like one of the best characters that's ever been in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and as mu- as much as everyone says, oh yeah, he's obviously gonna die. He got you know almost three hours of screen time. I didn't um, think he was gonna was die. Sh- Maybe I'm a moron, but I really thought he'd be fine. I, I don't either. I. I get a little annoyed with, oh, he's going to die because we didn't see him in the rebellion of Star Wars. And for me, Star Wars specifically, the galaxy is so big that if they introduce characters here, I don't need them to explain where they were during the Battle of Endor or anything like that. I think people, it's that whole Wikipedia thing is like, we need to know where Princess Leia was at every point of her life. No, we don't. We don't need to see how she got her gun holster. So like (laughs) saying that these people have to die just because they aren't in either Rogue One or the OT trilogy. That's kind of bullshit to me. That's just... That's thinking too literally about this stuff and thinking that the story is only as expansive as the characters you see and what you see on camera. Yeah. Um, part of these stories are about the fact that a whole universe exists out there and we're only getting a sliver of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, like like I said, I could talk so much more. Uh, please don't rely on our token token book section to be your whole recap of the first six episodes. Watch them. Um, be- <laughs> Uh, absolutely watch them mostly because I just want you, our viewer to watch something that's great after our rings of power coverage, but also we are going to probably be way more granular and more in depth when we get to, um, actually talking about it in our there and or back again, (laughs) a star Wars series from my brother, my captain, my podcast. So that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to all sorts of special bonus content, including our very first Patreon-exclusive episode coming out October 21st to our $10 patrons. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me wrapping up Metal Gear Solid coverage over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers and continuing coverage of A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, hawking copies of Nemec's Manifesto at every protest you ever go to. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier Andretheon, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. 
please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my Andor. Ha, ha, ha.